Another episode of the Renactors Corner? Well, sure. In this episode, we're going to talk to Doug Strong, who does Schuster and shoes. He knows a lot about this stuff, so let's pick his brains. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here again with Lassa. How are you doing today, Lassa? Ah, you know, hectic day at work, but I mean, I feel fine now. Not that I'm home and talking to you. Yeah, the end of the day for you. It's it's (laughs) always weird because the time difference, right? You're in Europe and in America, it's a different time. I'm excited about our episode today. We have a special guest Uh, His name is Doug Strong. Uh, He's a name that is going to be familiar with a lot of people who participate in reenactor discussion on Facebook. Um, We're going to talk to him about his areas of expertise, which includes World War II German boots, as well as uh, his impression of a Schuster, so a World War II German uh, cobbler. Uh, So, Doug, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to do this. So you and I have never really talked, so uh, right. it's, you know, it's, we've, we've talked on the internet a lot, right? Uh, but it's, it's cool to hear your voice. Well, I'm, uh, I'm excited about doing this. Uh, I'll talk about shoes and stuff like that all day long. Talking about reenacting always gets me excited. You guys never met? No. no I we, thought you had. We live in different parts of the country. You can still meet up. I know, it's true, but uh, no, I never, and I'm, I'm actually interested in talking to Doug about that a little bit, because the events that he does are all like different from the events that I do, so it'll be interesting to hear his perspective about you know, what kind of events they do. Doug, where, where do you live? I live outside of Chicago. Sure, so. so northern sure, so. Illinois. So that's like, I guess, you know, the Midwest reenactment scene. Well, why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about like uh, how long you've been reenacting and um, how you got interested in World War II reenacting and how you got interested in, in like other types of reenacting, right? Because I know you do other stuff as well. I started my first reenacting experience in the mid-1980s, probably 1984 was when I did my first uh, reenacting. And that was through the SCA, which some people don't consider reenacting, but, you know, it's still dressing up in historical clothing and communing with other people who have a similar interest. Um, And from that first experience, just kind of playing around, I realized that what I liked about reenacting was making stuff. And that has followed me into every time period that I've done. And I've done a lot of time periods, pretty much everything from ancient Rome up to World War II but I skipped the 18th century entirely. Don't ask me why. That's that's really cool. It's uh, interesting to have such a varied background um, because I know there's, at least like in my area, there's not a lot of kind of interaction between pre-20th century reenacting and, and 20th century reenacting. So it's, it's cool that you do both. There is here in the Midwest quite a bit of, of crossover. You know, a lot of my friends from my World War II unit are exactly the same people in my World War One unit. 
And a lot of those people mm -hmm. are in my medieval group. And a lot of those people are also in my Roman group or they do Viking or whatever with me. And it's kind of cool to see people in totally different time periods, but the same people with the same history that you've got from, you know, freezing to death in various reenactments or almost burning to death in a cabin that caught on fire. You know, you share those experiences. Yeah, almost dying. Right? Yeah, it's good times. <laughs> what was it that made you interested in reenacting World War II? And like, how long have you been doing World War II? Um, so as a kid, I had two obsessions. One was the Middle Ages and one was World War II. And I went back and forth between the two of them, but they always really filled my, my time reading about it, building models, uh, studying it. And so I started doing reenacting, as I said, doing medieval. I was doing 14th century for years. Uh, Yorkshire, England, 1386, very specific, was what I was really into. And I did that for a really long time until I had a really bad knee injury that took me out of the ability to get out and use the suits of armor that I had made for myself. I just couldn't do it anymore because of my knee had gotten too messed up. So I started dabbling in other time periods, and my nephew and I were both obsessed with World War II, and we said, hey, let's do World War II together. And he said, that's a great idea, but I'm going into the Army. And I said, all right, well, we'll do it when you get out of the Army. Well, he's made a career out of the Army. So eventually I gave up waiting for him, and I started um, looking around for other time periods to do, including World War II. And I met some guys at a, a event called uh, Military History Fest, which used to be called Reenactor Fest. And they were doing World War One, which I was really into. And I said, well, I, I think that would be fun. Turns out they were a World War Two unit that was actually just doing World War One as a side gig. And I met those people and I said, wow, this is awesome because these are makers. These are people who like to use their hands to make stuff. And I just absolutely found my people on the first try. And it was kind of cool. Because, you know, not every time period have I found the right group of people right away. So it was, it was kind of cool. What, uh, so what, what, world, what is like the name of your World War II unit that you're in now? The, the official name is 353rd Infantry Division. Uh, we're an HRS unit. Uh, based out of Illinois, but we have members um, in Indiana and Missouri in fairly large numbers, and also Wisconsin, Iowa. Generally, the Midwest is our area, far west as Oklahoma and Nebraska, and uh, a few scattered about. But it's a, it's a big group. We have about 90 members on the roster right now. And about 60 or so are quite active. That's incredible. That's a huge unit. Um, that, you guys must be one of the biggest uh, units in the United States. Probably, yeah. We're certainly the biggest in the HRS. Uh, we're the biggest German unit in the HRS, and I think we're the biggest unit in the HRS. I can't believe the geographic range uh, that your members cover. That's like a huge section of the United States. The guys who drive from Nebraska to come to Chicago are, you know, putting in 12 or 14 hour drives, and that is all highway. So they're moving at 
70, 80 miles an hour quickly across the country. So we do both public events and tacticals, and we've moved to a lot more immersion and private events recently, um, especially during COVID. It's been it's been kind of great opportunity for us to expand. Um, we do big public events. Rockford is the biggest public event in our area, and our unit is one of the host units uh, for that, and we, we help put on the event. And then we do a lot of other smaller events uh, that are you know around the area. We do Rails to Victory, which is a, a railway-themed event where uh, the the public doesn't walk around. They actually ride on a train car and move from vignette to vignette. And so if you're reenacting that, you're doing the same thing multiple times a day. Uh, so different public gets to see you. It's more like a, a theatrical production, but it's really cool. And we do events all over Illinois, um, especially. It's really heavy in Illinois. And we probably do, in the height of reenactment season, three events a month. Um, some months. Wow, wow, that's a ton. Yeah, we, we do a lot. We're a really active group. Um, recently, um, everything shut down, though, thanks to COVID. And so yeah. the one of the best things we did was we had our big Rockford event canceled. Everybody already had the time off for it. And we said, let's do a training weekend. So we had over 40 guys, I think it was 45 guys show up and do an immersion, immersion type training event. We worked on marching and drill and cooking and we taught classes. Um, and we were, we were really inspired to do that by Lassa's post about um, his immersion uh, barracks event. We thought that was such a great idea. Let's steal it and let's do it for ourselves. It was one of the most fun times I've ever had reenacting. <laughs> that's really cool. Now, 45 guys, that's quite a lot. Certainly better than my nine or something. I was surprised we could get 45 guys in one place to spend a, you know, a weekend just camping and marching and being dirty. I think that speaks to like the strength of your unit culture, you know, that you could get um, 45 people who just wanted to go and live the life for the weekend. I saw pictures on Facebook from that event, and it did look super impressive. Yeah, I mean, obviously all units have blind spots, and there are things that we need to work on. But we can get the guys out to the field, and we taught them a lot that weekend, and we learned a lot in the process. Um, there's, there's just something about seeing... 40 plus guys marching that really it really makes it feel a little more real i totally agree i know last and i've talked about that a little bit um on other episodes just like the sense of realism that comes with a bigger scale you know because world war ii was fought by lots and lots of people it wasn't fought by nine guys versus nine guys and when you get more people and more equipment and you know more of everything in a in a space it just really i think adds to the to the realism in many ways yeah it absolutely um and and being able to do different kinds of events allows different members to get their needs met in different ways so the guys who like to burn powder can get out and do tacticals and there's a lot of tacticals to do and the guys who like really talking to the public can can do that 
and we've got that. And for guys like me, we've got immersion now, which is tremendous. I think we're fortunate enough to have our own location. Um, that's our, our family farm with about 20 acres of woods that we can use to just go without asking anybody for permission, without doing anything. We can just go there anytime we want. And we've done impromptu events. And, uh, we have plans for a winter. When it snows, we'll have an event. And we're going to do snow camping, just an immersion. So I think it's fun gives us opportunities it's the same you know largely obviously i think all over the world that um reenactment events this year by and large have been canceled and the people that have still been able to do stuff are the people who have a unit you know a real life network and who have um like what you're saying you have your private property land uh that is accessible to you guys you know and that's such a such a good asset to have and not everybody is obviously so lucky to have that so um that's definitely huge for you guys let's uh let's jump into some of this boot talk because i know we have a lot to cover here um you know, why don't why don't you just tell us a little bit about how it was that you got kind of involved in World War II boots, repairing them, uh, evaluating reproductions, and kind of everything that you've done with that? Well, to do that, I have to start back in the Middle Ages. So when I started in the 80s, there was no reenactment stores you could go to to buy stuff. So if you wanted it, you made it yourself. And one of the things I realized is there was no footwear. Uh, available at all. So everyone was wearing, I don't know, moccasins and biker boots and whatever stupid things they could find to put on their feet. And I wanted something better. So I learned to uh, make shoes. And I was making shoes as a business for years uh, for medieval reenactors. And I did that for a very, very long time and very successfully. But as I started branching out into other time periods, my love for getting the footwear right followed me. So, you know, when I was doing other time periods, I just had to bring that with me. So doing World War One, I, I had to make my boots because I couldn't see using World War Two boots as World War One boots. They're not the same. Um, and so when I started doing World War Two, I made my boots. I, I wanted to, to own boots that I made. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just go into business doing that because I love I love working on footwear so much. And I realized the market was saturated and there was no point to it. Um, you know, it, it, there's plenty of sources for that. And what I realized that everybody has boots, but everybody's boots have problems. Everybody's boots that I met were falling apart. And so I was just kind of casually fixing boots. And I said, this is the impression I want to do. This is what I want to do. This is a role. This is a, a thing in the German army. There's a name for it. There are photographs of people doing it. That's what I want to research. That's what I want to study. And I was fortunate that my unit already had a culture of not just being frontline soldiers. You know, we represent, in large part, the 10 men for everyone who's on the line in the back. We have cooks. We have Schneiders, we have uh, Sattlers, we have uh, blacksmiths, and we we do all that other stuff as well. So within that culture of people who work with their hands and, and have developed impressions 
around being the, the Waffenmeister to fix guns and to be the, the, the Koch who cooks the food, it, it just fit in really, really well. And so I started studying it even more and getting every photograph I could find to be able to um, understand really what it was to fix German shoes in a proper way. So I started buying original shoes and looking at the way they had been repaired uh, and seeing all the quirky things that were done that weren't always the way that I would have done them had I just worked in a vacuum. There were repairs that I would never have thought to do. Um, and some of my earliest repairs to boots were done in a very different way than I would do them now. Uh, and I, I found it fascinating. And by studying photographs, 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 I found that there is a ton of information that you can get by looking at the evidence. And that's so exciting to me. And every once in a while, I'll find a photograph that's new that just shows something I haven't seen. Uh, one of my most exciting photograph moments was I purchased a photograph of a German Schuster working in uh, Belgium, and he's working be, uh, behind a little table, and on the table was a little cardboard box that had a blue circle on it, and I knew exactly what it was. It was wooden pegs wooden pegs produced by the company Blaubring, who are still making wooden pegs today, and they're still the same brand of wooden pegs that I'm buying and using. And that was so exciting to me. The packaging has changed very slightly since World War II, but it's the very same idea of a white box with a big blue ring on it, as the name implies. I love that connection to history and to see something. You know, you might have been the... Uh... I don't know, you might have been the first person to look at that photograph in decades and recognize what that object was. You know, to anybody else, it would just be a random piece of clutter on a table, you know, but to you, it was the key to something. That's really cool. Um, I, I had a picture last week or two weeks ago that I, that I purchased, and I was actually looking for photographs of men getting haircuts because that's what I was looking into at the moment. And there was a photograph of a guy getting a haircut behind a workbench and there were a lot of tools but the tools were out of focus and so it wasn't very clear to me whether it was uh, a schuster or a mechanic or or anything else but something about it just said that looks like a schuster picture and then i realized that right behind him is his iron last very distinctively with the three-legged foot that you see on german iron lasts of the time period I was like, yep, that's a Schuster getting a haircut. So it was a double whammy. I had to buy that picture. Yeah, I, I also look at a lot of original photos. I think that these two World War II reenactor original photos are just so invaluable. Um, you know, this documentation, the fact that uh, we are able to access photographs where people who do earlier time periods don't have that luxury. You know, I definitely try to make the most of it. Um, and speaking about boots in particular... I look at a lot of photos where 
you know, the guys are wearing boots that maybe look like they might not be the standard issue boots. Um, and I don't really know what they are, right? Like they could be private purchase boots or they could be foreign or captured boots, or maybe they are a manufacturer variation of um, Wehrmacht issue boots, or maybe they're just regular Wehrmacht issue boots and they look weird in the photograph for some reason. Um, and now I know you've done some like actual sort of studies about this stuff where you have created some data that you have shared with other reenactors, which I think is great. Um, what, what's your sense about what kind of boots German soldiers wore in World War II? So I would say the average soldier, you know, was issued the two styles of boots, your, your low or your ankle boots and your, your tall or your marching boots. And both of those styles probably were well known to every single soldier. But there's clear evidence that the Germans made good use out of huge stockpiles of captured material. Um, and there's clear evidence that not all of the boots manufactured in every single factory were identical. They had absolute requirements for what they had to be, but there definitely are manufacturer variations. And then you add into that the fact that officers had to purchase their own boots, um, and you get another whole host of variations in them. Um, and so you start to see variations in the photographs. And I'm always looking for oddball photos, showing me something I didn't expect in uh, in the photograph. Uh, boots that are floppy. Uh, you even see World War I boots in use during World War II. The side seam that runs up in place of the back seam. You'll, you'll find that. Uh, I've got some, some examples of that. So there was quite a variety. But the average soldier had very typical normal one of two styles. Probably he had both styles, especially early war and mid-war, uh, of footwear that he would have worn. Now you have, for, for people who maybe don't know about this, you have kind of created a, a document that lists the major suppliers of available reproduction boots and then gives your evaluation of them, um, which this obviously has helped a lot of people and there's probably not a month that goes by, you know, even now, even with this thing having been out now, I think for years, where somebody on one of the groups on Facebook doesn't say, hey, can someone please give me a link to this um, you know, Doug Strong uh, boot document. Um, but it, I think it's, it's a great service that you've done this because um, for most people, especially new people coming in, who may, some of whom maybe don't have like a unit that they can ask about this stuff, um, it's hard to understand like how to even begin to evaluate these things. Obviously, most people don't have original boots that they can compare reproduction boots to and they don't really maybe they don't even know what the original boots look like and um, black and white pictures can kind of only tell you so much unless you really study the stuff so I guess what what are the criteria that you use to to evaluate these uh, reproduction boots let me backtrack a little bit so I started doing it because I found so many people were buying really bad boots and then asking me to fix them and I don't want people to spend money unnecessarily. Even if that money goes to me, I would much rather have people buy once and buy right than, than have to have them fixed. So that was the why behind it. And so what I tried to do is evaluate on two 
criteria primarily. Quality and authenticity. Authenticity is the easier one to judge because heel irons are either the right style or they're not. Hobnails are either put in right or not, or they're made of aluminum or whatever that material those things are made of, which is not right. They should be steel. Um, the the construction, the which parts are flesh side out and which side parts are grain side out, there's, there's rules for that, for the German army. There's ways that they would have done it that make them typical, and there's variations. But if you know what those things are, you can evaluate the authenticity of the boots pretty easily. I find that to be much easier to evaluate than the quality. The quality is a much harder and much more subjective um, evaluation. So when I look at a pair of boots, and if I have them in my hands, it's a great help to me because, you know, I, I can make some notes. And because hundreds and hundreds of people have sent me their boots, I've pretty much handled every major maker of boots. There's a few I haven't. Um, but I think I've had handled pretty much anybody you would name. I've had some of their boots in, and I've seen how they failed. Now, the failing is not always the fault of the, uh, of the construction, although that can absolutely be part of it. The failure can also be based on the injury that the boot took, some damage based on an accident, or uh, some improper care or wear and tear. Things like that can also contribute to the failure of a boot. But when I'm evaluating them, I really try to be as objective as I can Realizing, of course, that it's very subjective. And there are some things that are just failing time after time after time on a particular maker of boots. You know, it's the type of leather that they used makes it prone to cracking. Or the type of stitching they use that makes the stitching prone to failing. Or it's the type of material that they make their hobnails out of that makes them uh, prone to dis uh, wearing down faster or it's the way that they install their hobnails that makes them prone to falling out. And there's certain makers who just have had problems with those things that I wind up fixing over and over and over again. And I'm usually pretty good at telling, oh, well, that boot is uh, a Jan Berger, and, and that boot is a Hessen, and that boot is at the front. It's the second generation or the third generation, which is also a, a confounding issue because most of these makers have gone through generation after generation of footwear as they've had problems, they've discontinued lines, and so that gets really confusing too. So somebody says, well, at the front, they make great boots. Yeah, they do now, but some of their boots weren't great in the past. Um, they stopped carrying bad boots, so, you know, credit to them, absolutely. Uh, and they, you know, they recognized a problem, and they stopped selling ones that weren't working until they found ones that are working now. So that, that change throughout time as the generations of boots does complicate uh, matters. And I've gotten things wrong on these, um, on these charts. You know, I'll, I'll get some information that I think is about the current run of boots, and it turns out it's an older run or something like that. So I try to update them at least once a year. Uh, I usually do it 
at the new year around January. But if I find I had something really egregious that I was definitely just wrong on, I'll do an update mid-year. Uh, I did a an update uh, early in the fall where I had a, a fact wrong uh, about uh, the way a boot was made. And I also had a price that was way higher on my list than it really is on the on their website now. So, you know, I try to be as fair and as honest and as um, supportive to all the bootmakers out there because I want them to do a good job. But, you know, feedback is is vital. And if, if you're getting a bad review from me, it's just me. I'm just a guy. I don't have any authority. But I do see a lot of boots, and maybe it's worth listening to. And I have had some companies say, well, what happens here when they break? And they've made some changes as a result. That's excellent. Yeah, I've never heard anybody uh, accuse you of being biased in how you you evaluate the boots or anything like that. Yeah, I'm not everyone likes my evaluations. I've gotten a little bit of hate mail from the makers, but not not much. Um, <laughs> you know, um, mostly they're the comments people make about their boots to me is supportive, you know, well, I really didn't realize it did that, or man, uh, maybe that's something we could fix, or what do you think about this or that? So it's kind of cool that, that they want to hear it, for the most part. Not everyone does. It's cool that you have the influence that they changed your production uh, to There's be one company um, that really sought my feedback over and over again, and had totally changed what they were doing with Boots, and they went from kind of a a tier three up to a tier two, and they're they're a, a good, a really good option for people who want less expensive boots. So that's kind of cool. You know, I I see stuff on the internet a lot where reenactors will maybe complain about their boots. Um, I went to an event and some hobnails fell out, or um, this boot didn't last me long enough, or uh, the boot isn't comfortable enough. What are some like reasonable expectations that you think a reenactor should have when they get their hands on a new pair of boots that they're going to be using for this hobby in terms of durability, in terms of uh, comfort and stuff like that? Because it seems kind of all over the map, like people don't really know what to expect. So I, I would say a couple of things. You truly do get what you pay for in most cases. And if you buy a $75 pair of boots, they're probably going to feel like you're wearing a $75 pair of boots. And if you buy a, you know, a $350 pair of boots, they're going to probably feel like $350 boots. And they'll feel a hell of a lot better than that $75 pair. But um, that's not always true. Um, the one thing I would say is reenactors should expect to have the same kinds of problems with their footwear that German soldiers had. And one of them is losing hobnails. You will lose hobnails. It's not a if, it's a when. Everybody loses hobnails because they're, you know, they're little tacks put into leather and they're not going to stay there forever. Um, German soldiers lost hobnails. I was doing the Schuster impression at an event and a German veteran came up to me and started talking to me. And, and he said, you would have been my best friend because if I was found by my sergeant to have misting hobnails, I would pull bad duty. That's how he tried to explain it. He would have extra guard duty or some onerous task that he was given 
um, because he had missing hobnails, and his sergeant was a stickler for that. So it, it was kind of an interesting moment to be doing an impression and talking to a, to a soldier who had lived that life and see what the role would be for him. Uh, I thought that was cool. Uh, so there, there is a problem. You're going to lose. You're going to lose some hobnails. You're also probably going to have a maintenance that you have to do to your boots. And if you don't do that maintenance, your boots are going to fall apart. Um, just like boots that were worn in combat for weeks on end would have been much worse shape uh, because they were neglected for weeks than the boots of a man who is well behind the line and can regularly clean and, and grease his boots. Uh, boots that are worn often without any maintenance are going to suffer. And I would say that maintenance is on two sides. Um, the worst thing you can do to a pair of boots is to heat them up. Like you get them wet and you dry them by a fire. That That's awful. That's just asking your boots to fall apart. Um, and you should absolutely never dry them that way. But the second worst thing you can do to a pair of boots is to give them improper attention. And that can either be too much or too little. If you do nothing to your boots, they get all dried out and your, your hobnails will start falling out faster and your your leather may crack or shrink or get moldy. Uh, and so not enough attention to your boots will kill them. But too much attention can kill your boots just as easily. If you're one of the people who religiously oils your boots with neat's foot oil after every single event, you may find you're in, inadvertently shortening the life of your boots. Um, the boots will tell you how much oil they want to drink. Your boots shouldn't be drowning. And and so one of the guys in my unit is an old cavalry reenactor from Civil War days. And his boots are so comfortable to wear because they're wet all the time with oil. And because they're wet all the time with oil, the leather is deteriorating, the stitching is breaking. And when I go to repair them, it's like hammering a piece of meat. It's, it's juicy, and that's not pleasant to use. Uh, it's, it's bad. Um, and it, nothing holds to it. You can't use any glue. Um, if you're, you're trying to get pieces to stay, they're slippery, and they, they, they slide apart while you're trying to stitch them. So too much of a good thing can also be as bad as too little. Um, so as I say, you know, don't don't heat them to dry them if they get wet, because that will guarantee you need new boots. And give them a proper amount of care. Regularly oil or grease your boots. You've got to do it. But that doesn't mean every event. So what what are like, you know, for our listeners out there, like, because I know people are are wondering, like, okay, what products should I be using? How should I take care of these things? That's a good question. Um, so basically, you have to clean your boots. When you're done using them, get all the dirt off them because the dirt will promote mildew and rot, and you want to get that. I use a, uh, a scrub brush that I bought at a, uh, a hardware store that was a, a very stiff bristled broom, and it had a wooden head with, 
with, uh, I don't know what they are, horsehair bristles or something. And I just cut it in half on a bandsaw. So I had two of them. And I carry one in my kit. And I take it when I'm done and I knock all the really nasty dirt and mud off of them. Um, and you have to make sure your boots are dry uh, properly with time before you do anything else. Then when you're done and you want to give some some care to it, you need to add some sort of um, grease back into the boot. And basically, you have three choices of types of products. You have oils, which are liquid. You have greases, which are more like a, a Vaseline type thing. It's a, you know, it's a grease. And you have creams that are more like, well, in between the two. Um, and different ones work differently, um, depending on what you're doing. I personally have brands that I prefer than, than other brands, but there's really no bad brands of these things. You know, if you get a, a good quality leather cream like Skidmore's or a good quality uh, leather grease like Hubbard's, or Obanoff's shoe oil, you won't go wrong with with any of these. Uh, they're all really, really good products. And as long as you use them correctly, according to the directions, they can all do the same thing. Um, I do use a product called Snow Seal on my boots to help make them a little more water resistant, but I don't snow seal them every event. I do that before I'm going to be at an event which I think is going to be particularly wet. So that happens once or twice a year. They might get a little snow seal on them. Um, it will not waterproof your boots. There's no such thing as waterproof boots unless you're wearing rubber boots. But it might help some of the resistance to water. And it helps you uh, keep your feet a little drier. So that's not a bad thing. That's cool. I use snow seal too. I, I definitely... Uh... I go through maybe a tub of it a year between my reenactment stuff and the stuff that I just use, you know, for hiking and camping and stuff. Um, it's super, super good stuff. I love it. I think it's really good. Um, but it's not what I hydrate my leather with, you know. It does its job, but it's not a one, there's no such thing as a, you know, one-stop shop for leather care. <laughs> We've talked about it before on the podcast. I've, I think I've probably used just about every major brand of commercially available leather and boot grease, oil and, and cream and paste type product. And I found them, you know, more, like you say, I think they all worked, you know, I, they were not exactly the same. They didn't work exactly the same. But in terms of um, treating my boots, they treated my boots, you know. I have different ones that I use for different things. I have pretty much every product ever made here in my workshop. I mean, they're all here. You know, pick a brand. It's on the shelf someplace. And different ones are, are better for different things. Obviously, at the time, the uh, there were a whole, like, during World War II, there were a whole variety of different products that people could use, too. There sure were. Yeah, lots and lots of them. The interesting thing that is missing from most lists uh, of what they used is shoe polish. So we, we think of Kiwi black shoe polish. Well, you put it on your boots. It's good for you. The Germans didn't like that. Uh, and in fact, they, uh, there's mentions of it. They, they believe that shoe polish 
clogged the pores of the leather, and so they uh, didn't have their soldiers use them. They did dye their leather to make it black, uh, and, and the inventories list a, a, That's interesting. a, a product called leather blackening, um, and they have leather grease, and that's what maintains that black, you know, company. The leather fat that you put on uh, makes your makes your boots stay dark because they're you know they're well oiled. Um, but they didn't use shoe polish. That doesn't mean it didn't exist, and that doesn't mean soldiers didn't occasionally polish with shoe polish. But it wasn't. Um, it was against the rules to use shoe polish. I never knew. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, that that's one I found by reading primary sources, and and you know being uh, able to read German is a help. Uh, I wish I could read German better because I miss nuances. Uh, but but that one is that one definitely was a, a a primary source, and it was not allowed, and it was you know recommended that not recommended required that they not do that. Which I thought that was cool. I use it all the time. It's cool. <laughs> but you know, I like black shoes. I use it too. Yeah, it's great stuff. And it really it takes that scuff out of the toe that uh, that you got from dragging your, your toes in the dirt. And it does a great job of that. Uh, it, it absolutely works. And I, I won't stop using it. But my yeah. 1944 counterpart wouldn't have been using it. You know, there's there's like a lot of, I think, kind of misinformation and... Uh, confusion out there about how they blackened boots, um, you know, what, what method they used to make the the boots black, whose responsibility it was to make the boots black, like what kind of product they used. Um, you know, the, I, I think we'll always have people who recommend that people blacken their boots using um, steel wool and, and vinegar or something, right? Shouldn't be allowed. That that one gets me every time. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as a method. It's just not the method they were using at that time, and it is hard on the leather. Um, the 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 vinegaroon, which is what that product is called uh, a century earlier in America, um, is great. I mean, it'll make the blackest black you've ever seen if you oil it, and it's it's really nice, and it won't rub off on anything. And I've used it on on modern belts that I've made to wear with my blue jeans uh, because the, the leather dye won't come off, but you better neutralize it. The acid in the, in the leather will cause it, the last acid in the vinegar will cause it to break down. Uh, you're putting rust into your, into your leather. So you've got to neutralize it with uh, baking soda or some other similar product for it to work. Um, and there's no evidence the German soldiers used it, and it's a pain in the butt. So why would you do that? You know, I, I, that's one that always gets me. So yeah, there's clear pictures of German soldiers dyeing their boots. I've got a, a couple of really nice ones, and uh, including color photographs, uh, and they're using a paintbrush and dipping it into a jar. And it's shiny, uh, and it's wet, and it's thin, and it's a alcohol-based or oil-based leather dye, just like you might buy today. Um, and that it was called leather blackening, and they um, they issued a lot of it to soldiers in the inventories 
of how much shoe equipment was needed in 1944 for a thousand men, it's a it's a remarkable amount of shoe blackening that they allocated for every thousand men, uh, which I, I thought was surprising. But, you know, boots have to be blackened, I mean, uh, uh, at least by regulation. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, your Schuster impression. Um, how, how easy or how hard is it to learn the skills to repair these boots uh, the way that they would have been repaired at the time? How hard or how easy it is to get, like, uh, the type of tools that they would have used? I think it's really easy to learn to repair them. Um, you know, it, it's, there's no magic in it. If anybody wants to learn, I'll teach them. And I'll be glad to teach them enough people to put me out of business as the company Schuster. I have no problem doing that because I think people should be self-sufficient. And if somebody else wants to do the impression, I will gladly help them take on that impression because I think it's a cool one to do. Um, it's, it's not hard to learn. There's certain skills you have to learn and certain techniques you'll get better at as you go. But it, it's if you can hammer a nail in and you can cut leather, you can do a Schuster impression. It's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. It's, it really is something that anybody could learn to do. And I've taught quite a few people to do it. Uh, as, as far as, as that process goes, uh, it does take practice to get good at it. And certain skills will... Um, you'll just get a whole lot better at when you when you've done it a lot. I, I was just cleaning up my workshop today, and I found a template that I used to use that showed me where every hobnail went in a sole, and I threw it in the garbage because I don't need that anymore. Because I've laid out so many thousands of hobnails that I just need a center line. And from my center line, I established all of my other hobnails off of that. And it's just a matter of practice. That does take time to develop the eye for putting them in and the, and the, the touch to know how hard you have to hit this variety of hobnail versus that variety. Because there's as many different varieties of hobnails as there are stars in the sky. There must have been thousands of factories producing hobnails, and they're all a little different. Some have barbs, some have multiple prongs, some have really sharp points, some have really blunt points. And if you know the kind that you're working with, you can, you can put them in pretty quickly. That does take practice. But to learn to do a basic repair on shoes, it's the kind of thing every reenactor could learn to do. And if you want to get the tools to do it, they're easy to come by if you want American varieties. Um, go to any antique store and you'll find an iron shoe last and any old hammer will work. You can probably also find an American pattern cobbler's hammer in any antique store for only a few dollars. Although some people think they're made of gold, they're really not. Uh, some people try to sell them for a lot of money. They're just, they're, they're a dime a dozen. So those shoemaking tools were being sold in America at places like uh, Sears Roebuck through their catalog. Every farm in America had shoe repair tools. They're really, really easy to come by. And lots of people give them to me. You know, oh, you're a shoemaker, here's some. 
And it's tremendous that people are generous, but man, do I have a lot of them. So you know, I, I give them to other people as they're starting uh, to, uh, to do that. If you want to find the European pattern, it's a lot harder here in the United States. Lhasa could probably find them much more easily than, than, than Chris. But uh, you can get them if you're willing to pay to have them shipped from Europe. Uh, I just uh, got the ultimate iron last. It's a really nice one. Uh, it's got a, a Reich's patent mark on it. It's the exact style that shows up in every single photograph, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to use it. I also find I like using it a whole lot better than the American style. They're, they're more stable. They're meant to be used outdoors because they have this three-legged, three-sided foot uh, that really is stable on, on bare ground, uh, which I think is, is wonderful. I think the American pattern are meant to be used indoors, whereas these German pattern ones are meant to be used on the dirt which I think makes total sense to me. Um, I've always had a European pattern hammer. Ever since I started doing shoes, I, it was just the first one I happened to get, and I love it. It's a beautiful hammer, and it just feels right in my hand. Um, but once again, you don't have to have a special hammer just to do it. You have to have a special hammer and a special last to do the impression better. So that does help. And there are other little things you need, like a, um, a pegging awl for putting wooden pegs in. And that's a, just a specialized little uh, punch that you make or that you buy that makes little holes in the leather that you put your wooden pegs in. And you probably need a stitching awl, which is just a, essentially a nail in a wooden handle that makes holes that you can thread your, your needles through. And, you know, obviously pull the, pull the thread. But there's not a lot of super specialized tools. Now, I happen to have some other things that are really specialized. I have an Adler sewing machine, which is the, the German uh, patch machine, uh, which is designed for sewing on boots and on leather. And you see them on pictures of German cobblers who are working out of the back of trucks or who are you working more in a depot setting where they're working with other guys doing the same thing. And they definitely had those. And I, I love my, my sewing machine. It certainly makes my life easier when I have to stitch up something. But it's not a requirement. A needle and thread, you can sew anything. So it all depends on, on how you want to go. Now, the, the tools that they had, that the, uh, that the German field cobblers had... Um, were they like? Do you think they were military issue tools, or were they the exact same type of tools that were maybe commercially available at that time? I think they're the identical tools that are being used commercially at the time. Um, there is some mil military issue um, leatherworking tools for certain, but um, they're the exact same patterns as the um, as the commercial ones. I don't think there was enough need to have to develop a, a, a totally unique supply line when these things are being produced for the commercial market. I think they simply bought commercial ones and, and used them. The, the identical patterns of hammers and of iron lasts show up in civilian photographs and in military photographs. 
and you can look at them. There's about three styles that you'll see in Germany, and you'll see both all three styles in both civilian and military contexts of Iron Last. So I think they're just using them. But I have a um, a leatherworking kit that is absolutely uh, military issue. It was um, brought back by a veteran who wrote his name and address on the leather package and popped it in the in the mail, and it wound up in in Boston or from Germany, and that was just kind of cool that it's got his name on it. But every single tool inside of this tool roll is marked, um, is dated um, with acceptance stamps and the whole deal. So they absolutely were making them for the military, but it seems like an awful specialized toolkit that I have. It's definitely not a shoemaker's toolkit, some sort of a specialized leather worker's toolkit, a saddler's kit, perhaps. Um, And it's really nice. It's lined in green felt, and every single variety of tool you could imagine wanting to use to repair something leather is in there. Uh, And it's it's very, very cool. And it's unissued, so the tools are pristine, which is nice. Wow, that's really interesting. Sounds like a really rare item. Yeah, I've never seen another one. Um, and, And I don't know... What sort of leather worker would have had it? Perhaps a sattler um, working at a cavalry school, perhaps, might have been intended for that. Uh, it doesn't really look like a field set. You know, it's it's really, really nice. I'm learning so much. I know. Already. There's a lot of information here that uh, is new to me, so very cool. <laughs> it's hard to shut me up sometimes. Now, let me let me pick your brain about one other kind of technical uh, subject, which is hobnails. Um, a lot of vendors offer original hobnails. You can find original hobnails in Germany. Um, but, I mean, I know civilians used hobnails on some level, and I know that there were hobnails that were used during World War II, before World War II, during World War One, you know, probably before that, and also after World War II. Um you know, do you have a sense of like what constitutes an original World War Two German hobnail, or is are they all the same? You know, like uh, what what do you think? Um, I wish I had a really good answer for that. Military hobnails have multiple facets, and that part is is absolutely accepted. But the number of facets and the shapes of facets is anybody's guess as to what constitutes a a military hobnail. Um, That they were faceted with five sides, six sides, nine sides is definitely a fact. But in original boots, including some that are unissued, that I've handled or that I own, there's a wide variety of them. Um, And faceted hobnails were being used prior to World War II and after World War II. So what constitutes an original hobnail is hard to hard to say. Um, occasionally, you find them in Wehrmacht packaging, and and that's that helps. Um, you can tell that those are, but they're identical to others that are in plain packaging or no packaging anymore because the packaging has deteriorated. Um, I use original hobnails for 
uh, as much as I possibly can because they, they look right. They also happen to be cheaper than the reproduction hobnails. So we'll see. Although I just bought some reproduction hobnails from Poland that I'm anxious to give a try. Uh, and if they turn out to be as good as the originals, then I think I'll shift over to those because they, they seem to be excellent. So I may have to order a million hobnails from Poland someday, but that's okay. It's worth doing. That's very cool. I've watched the availability of hobnails kind of change over time where um, 20 years ago when I started reenacting, so original hobnails or purportedly original hobnails were like, super available and were very inexpensive and then at one time they were like really scarce um and now there have kind of been some vendors that have been offering them more regularly again it's really really interesting to watch this availability of these products that were made um 50 plus years ago and then for some reason never used right in by the million right i mean there, there's a lot of them out there uh which is great for me when, when do you think hobnails kind of stopped being in uh, widespread use? Do you have any sense of that? Well, in military footwear, the British were using them long, long after everyone else was. British were still using them, I think, up until the 70s uh, on, their, on their footwear. Though I'm not an expert, I do believe that's true. Um, but by the 50s, with the ready availability of rubber soles and the... Uh, the usability of rubber soles. Uh, I think pretty much everybody had shifted their common ordinary boots to rubber soles. Um, and, you know, it, World War II was kind of the, the tipping point for that. You know, the Americans entered the war in leather-soled shoes, uh, and they exited the war in rubber-soled shoes. Uh, and that, that, to me, is, uh, I think, interesting. You know, it's, it's just one of the changes that happened. By the time we were in the war, though, we were using rubber soles for the whole war. But, you know, in that pre-war, immediately pre-war period, we were using leather soles. No hobnails in America, but um, those had gone away after World War One. But uh, the leather-soled shoes just wear out faster, and rubber soles are, you know, are great. They don't get slippery on the, on the sidewalk. You know, I, I can remember as a kid getting new shoes with leather soles and the first thing you do is you take them out onto the concrete and scuff up the soles or you're going to be airborne um you know yeah i'm old because you know i grew up with leather sole shoes <laughs> but i mean I, I remember that stuff uh, and hop nails are, are are wonderful uh in that way they protect the leather that's what they're they're there for they're not only there for traction though they do that they double or triple the life of the leather under them because you're walking on steel. So that, that that's why they're there. And then the traction is a secondary benefit. And the traction is a, a benefit of marginal value on certain circumstances, uh, certain surfaces. You know, uh, I think they're wonderful in snow and ice, but uh, others say on ice they're slippery. I don't find that to be the case. But I can tell you, I've never met anybody who wants to wear one on a tile floor. So dangerous. I walked into a Cabela's one time. Um, in I was only wearing my hobnail shoes after an event. There's, I just had forgotten my regular <laughs> shoes or something. And I was walking up to the gun counter, and then I found myself airborne because I just slipped on that tile floor. And it was, it was embarrassing, but it was also um, a lesson in, in learning. 
You know, I, I think hobnails are great, but not every surface. Always walk like yeah. a penguin. Yes, exactly. Walk like a penguin is it is something I teach the troops in the unit. Uh, ironically, I was teaching uh, the the troops to walk downhill on a freshly black-topped hill, and we were talking about that when I took a spill in my hobnails, and I'm talking to them about how they should walk, and there I go down, and I'm the one who, who ripped my pants and ripped my knee up pretty bad. But, oh well. Do as I say, not as I do. You don't want to do that. Yeah, I guess there's sometimes a difference between knowing how you're supposed to do something and then actually like doing it the way that you know how you're supposed to do it. Absolutely. And, and I was I was giving good advice. And I guess I just illustrated the point of what happens if you stop following that advice. Yeah, you did it on purpose, so I get it, sure. It's good yeah. to bleed for for the men. Yeah, you look tough. <laughs> yeah, I I allowed the the rip in those pants to stay for the rest of the season. It was a badge of honor, and then I sewed it up over the winter. Nice. That nice. was early September, I think. You should have gotten a wound badge. Yeah, that. yeah, I did. Uh, I I did tear the ACL a little bit, but that was more of a re tear of my <laughs> of my previous injury. So, in your time of repairing boots, like what are some what are some common ways that boots wear out that that can be repaired? And almost all boots can be repaired, but. Uh, the question of whether some boots should be repaired. Um, so I think the number one thing people come to me for is hobnails. Right? They lose a lot of hobnails, especially if they had the aluminum ones. And those tend to wear out fairly quickly. Some brands uh, put a washer on the back, and some, some makers um, do some other things to help them last a little longer, and they stay pretty securely. But the aluminum ones are just going to wear out. And any hobnail can fall out. So repairing missing hobnails is a, is a big one. Um, the leather half sole pulling away from the full sole is another area where a lot of boots get into trouble. That's right where your foot flexes. And so that starts to separate a lot of boots. And that's, a, that's a common one. Um, the whole half sole concept is a really genius one. That half piece of leather there is meant to be repaired. It's meant to be replaced. The, um, the purpose of it is to wear out so that you can repair them in the field. And the fact that we have uh, a half piece of leather that's held on with wooden pegs and can be pulled off really makes them um, boots that can have a lot of longevity. So I do that repair on a regular basis. That half sole wears out and you put on another one. And German Army cobblers were issued stacks and stacks of half soles in different sizes, pre-cut, uh, wired together, and they're all stamped with a date and with a manufacturing number and a size. Uh, and I have stacks of them. I've got a, a December 1944 stack that's still all wired together, which is kind of cool to see. Um, but that that is meant to be done. It's You're supposed to replace that half sole. And that's where your leather's going to get worn out most anyway. Uh, it can get dry, it can get cracking. And so that's that's another big one. Uh, other repairs that I make have to usually to do with stitching lines, where some of the threads have come undone. It really doesn't take much one thread breaking, um, and the, it's, the whole boot kind of starts to unravel. So that's another one that I do. 
Heels, if they're not properly made or secured, will fall off. And sometimes the whole upper part of the boot can separate and fall off of the lower part of the boot. So that's another one that I, I do. I don't like doing that one because at that point you start to say, huh, is it time to start thinking about a new pair of boots? Um, you know, I'll repair any pair of boots somebody wants me to fix, but it's not always worth it. Um, so I gave advice to a gentleman yesterday who had a pair of boots that I could have fixed, but it would have cost him nearly as much money as buying a new pair of boots. And I'd rather him spend the money on a new pair of boots than me get his money because his boots were of middling quality initially when they were made, and they're not going to get better by being repaired. They may be as good as new, but when as good as new was middle, uh, when you could spend almost as much as you would for a, an upper-tier pair of boots, yeah, it might be time to look into that. And he's an experienced reenactor with a lot of years under his belt, so he'll probably continue to do it. It's worth investing in your feet. I guess my, my final question about it is, uh, you know, when is it time to throw in the towel? When is What kind of damage or how do you know that, it, that the boots are basically dead? It's a good question. So it's usually when the, the last repairs are starting to undo. Um, so the pair of boots that the gentleman showed me yesterday were uh, repaired by somebody else previous to me. And you could see where those repairs were starting to fail which means that the leather is losing some of its integrity. Um, and when the leather is losing its integrity, it doesn't matter how well you do the repair, it's going to fail someplace else in the same way. Um, so you can use the, the best glue in the world, like they put modern shoes together with. I mean, modern shoes are just glued together. If you had that same glue, you can put them together and you can make them stick for a while. And you can use nails and pegs and stitching but that the leather is starting to fail, that's the point at which it might be time to throw in the towel. So, you know, there's lots of good boots out there for $200. A lot of them. I mean, you've got a lot of options. You've got a lot of options in the, in the $300 range, and you have some options in the $100 range. Um, but if your boots are going to cost you $175 to have them fixed, it might be time to spend $200 on a new pair. You can keep that other pair around as loaners or something. You know, motivate the new guys to get boots quickly because the ones you want them are so bad. Nice. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, make sure your loaner gear smells bad. You know, it's great. But they want to have it. it. smells like mildew. It's, it's nothing more motivating than yucky gear. My first event was in, a, was in ice, and I was wearing loaner boots that were totally slick on the bottom, and I must have fallen down uh, 50 times. And you know the next event that I did, I had my own boots. It's the way to go. you gotta have, you got to be able to walk. Um, Lasse, did you have any other questions for Doug before we wrap this one up? Yeah, there's one that I'm curious on uh, from a reenactment uh, standpoint. And that is, uh, during World War II, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of different footwear uh, that was specialized for running or for guard duty or similar stuff. But is there any footwear you would like to see reproduced that is currently not being reproduced? So what I think we're lacking is good quality winter boots that are made well at a price point that people can afford 
um, that are made properly. And, and that's starting to happen. I, I've seen three makers in the last year start working on winter boots. And those are the, the leather and felt boots. I think those are, are much needed. I don't, I don't know how widely distributed they were. I mean, clearly there's, there's a lot of evidence that they were distributed. But how widespread they got, um, I, don't, I don't know. However, I do know they're awful darn convenient and comfortable to wear. And I think that would be the, the thing that if I were getting the footwear makers of the world to start investing their time and energy into, I would like to see more of those. The other thing I'd like to see more of are the sport shoes. You find a surprising number of them in camp photos. The guys are, are wearing them sitting around camp while they're polishing their other shoes. They seem to have sport shoes with them more often than you would think. Yeah, I've seen those a lot too. And I know there are some makers that are that are starting to offer these. And uh, hopefully as more people come online and they're able to refine the manufacturing process, maybe the prices can, can come down too. I mean, although there is a, a limit, like you say, you, you do get what you pay for. Absolutely. And I, I don't think they need to be barred in basement. But, you know, the, the ones that, that are out there are, are either a sacrifice of price or the sacrifice of authenticity slash quality. And, and there, there's probably a middle ground there someplace. So they look right, and they hold up well, and you don't have to sell a kidney to get one. Yeah, the ones out currently are prohibitively expensive. But I do know a couple of the makers that I've talked to are working on them. Um, and I'm, I'm anxious to see where they, where they come out. I think uh, everyone realizes that the the 2020-2021 reenactment winter season is probably not the big moneymaker. So I think people are going to be looking at winter boots for 21-22, where they thought they might have tried to get them out in time for 2021. I think they figured they've got more time because there's just no events happening. Uh, But I think that extra year of research and development may be good for all of us. I hope it will be. Doug, um, if people want you to fix their boots, um, you know, how can they get in touch with you? Or do you have like a website or, or social media that you wanted to let people know about? Absolutely. So um, the easiest way to do is find me on Facebook. I'm Douglas Strong. Um, if you search the company Schuster, you will find me. Um, I, uh, I had to get a new Facebook account because I made a post on my unit website about the type of glasses that were worn by German soldiers during World War II. And eyeglasses in the use of German soldiers violates community standards, so they nuked my account. So um, I no longer have access to my company Schuster Facebook page, um, and it's running on autopilot now. So I would encourage people to go and look and learn, but don't try to contact me through that right now. So Douglas Strong is my Facebook name, or you can email me at doug-strong at comcast.net. I am working on a standalone website for the company Schuster, and I will uh, hopefully uh, have an opportunity to build something up so people can find me again, because right now I'm a little bit uh, isolated from people's ability to get to me. I would also offer if people uh, mention this podcast 
to give them a discount on any repair work I do or a, or a free gift like uh, free toe plates or something to that effect uh, for, for the listeners of this podcast. Awesome. I appreciate that a lot. We do. That's really cool. That's way cool. I think this is a great podcast. I really enjoy listening to it. Um, a number of your sub- subscribers are members of my unit. The, a lot of your Patreon guys are, are guys from my unit. We all love it. It's a lot of, a lot of fun to listen to and so much to learn. You guys are, are wealths of knowledge. Um, so it's, it's great. Thank you for doing it. We appreciate that feedback. That's really nice. You're too nice. I suck at receiving compliments. Uh, Doug, it has been awesome having you on this podcast. That You have been an absolute uh, wealth of knowledge, and it's been great talking to you. Um, I feel like we could probably talk about this for another hour at least, um, and maybe we could even have you on again uh, sometime in the future. I'd love to. All right. Uh, I guess we'll wrap this one up for now. Uh, I'm kind of out of time. So, uh, so Lassa and Doug and everyone else out there, uh, everybody stay safe. I'll see you in the field. I'll see you in the field. Don't forget to use our 7% discount code off of uh, FedAgKopf at german-worldward2.com. And if you buy something there and you go to the checkout and you use the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, you will get a very nice discount. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast.